Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I'm Maya Nowens. Today we will examine the recent developments in Europe across the European Union as well as NATO. We'll look in particular at how the COVID pandemic has affected Europe's economy, domestic politics in various member states, as well as greater strategic coherence across the European Union. Joining me today are two of my distinguished colleagues from the IISS. Sarah Rain is the Consulting Senior Fellow for Geopolitics and Strategy. She's based in Berlin, and her research focuses on the interplay between the rise of Asia and the future of transatlantic relations, with a particular emphasis on the responses of European powers. Prior to joining the IISS, Sarah worked as a director in a UK-based strategic and corporate financial advisory company, and as a diplomat in the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Joining me also is Fabrice Bottier, a consulting senior fellow for defense and policy and strategy. He has over 15 years of experience in strategic affairs and leading international public policy campaigns and has notably served as head of public policy planning for two successive NATO secretary generals. Welcome, Sarah and Fabrice. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Um, so perhaps, uh, Sarah, let's start with you. Could you perhaps explain very briefly what um, some of the responses have been uh, to COVID-19, both in the EU as an institution, as well as um, by several member states? Sure. Well, I think the uh, the notable feature in the early months of this crisis has been how, of course, health is a, a competence that is not EU-led, it is member state-led. And the responses in the early weeks were very clearly uh, member state-led with very little coordination, frankly, uh, not much consultation even. Uh, that meant that what we saw was a little bit of a rush towards uh, closing borders, very much a focus on uh, the national, uh, the role of the commission rather limited, although importantly, they did step in early on to suspend European state aid rules and to suspend, of course, EU fiscal rules as well. What we're seeing now, though, is more interesting because what we're starting to see is EU coordination sort of moving in behind. We've had the ECB uh, announce its pandemic emergency purchase program, uh, which will due to last through to June 2021. Um, and there's a total at the moment of uh, 1,350 billion euros. And I think the uh, possibly the most interesting in initiative in terms of the future of the EU comes from the Macron-Merkel proposal for a recovery fund, which is notable, if you like, in two features. Uh, one is that uh, this recovery fund will be disseminated in the form of grants. Uh, so this is not loans, we're talking grants. And the money for those grants, the second reason it's notable, is because it will come from shared borrowing, something that's been on Macron's agenda for a while now. And so I think this is really one of those sort of whatever it takes moves from Germany. The details, of course, are still very much up for negotiation. We're hoping uh, for some progress at the first face-to-face -face meeting that EU council leaders uh, and member state leaders will have uh, in the middle of July. And Fabrice, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this recovery fund has faced some challenges uh, within the European Union and from particularly four member states, if I'm not mistaken, the Netherlands, uh, my own country, Austria, Denmark and Sweden. What are they opposing to exactly? 
Well, I think what they're opposing is is to give free money to uh, the what are considered as the weaker uh, economies, mostly from the south of Europe, especially Spain and Italy, uh, without conditions for uh, cleaning their public deficit and reforming their economies. Um, and I think they're also contesting on the scale of the proposed recovery fund that was put forward by the European Commission, which is 750 billion euro. But however, I think what's significant is that Merkel, which usually used to be the one keeping the frugal four together and used to be, I think, the one speaking for them, has clearly stepped out of that, that group. Um, and, and that was, a, I think, the real breakthrough with the Macron-Merkel uh, efforts to, to put something together. Because for the first time, uh, Germany is no longer, I would say, fully aligned with the uh, northern uh, European uh, member states. Um, and is trying to actually push them, whilst at the same time trying to see if uh, the those who are asking for grants rather than loans uh, will be willing to also put some kind of soft conditionality on how they will be spending that money. So I think that was a real breakthrough is the frugal four are four and no longer five. Uh, and the fact that Merkel did what she was reluctant to do after 2008 and the euro crisis, which is basically allow the European Commission to borrow money and to provide this uh, money without conditionality was was quite significant. I think that Fabrice's point on soft conditionality is a really good one because Germany sort of found itself almost in this brokering role once more, hasn't it? It has, as Fabrice said, stepped out of the frugal four in terms of the grand scheme of the proposal. Here's money for grants based on EU shared borrowing. However, and this is where actually it does move back towards the frugal four, there's some conditionality around this. This is not some grand long-term Hamiltonian move that some commentators have described it as. This is a short-term response that is not simply giving money to states to pay debts. It will be very, very carefully focused on clear policies around certain sectoral uh, issues, green policies, digital policies and the like. And that's her sort of brokering effort to try and bring sides together. Whether or not it works, of course, we'll have to see in the next month or so. So what actually prompted this change in the German position then? Well, uh, if I may, and I'm sure Sarah will have some insights, I, I, I think it's very basic. It's the existential threat upon the European project. And I think this is obviously for all of us a disturbing uh, uh, prospect. But I think for Germany especially, this put Germany in a very, very difficult position because Germany needs the European project to be a strong central economy and power, not only in Europe, but in the world. And without this European project, Germany finds itself basically pretty much on its own with its own power. And, and this is politically... Uh, really unacceptable for Berlin. So I think that was the sense that this is existential. This is not a financial crisis. This is uh, a crisis at very, you know, social, economic, uh, and therefore it could really undermine what we have been trying to build over the last 60 years. And also because, of course, Germany took over the presidency of the EU on the first of the rotating six month presidency of the EU on the 1st of July. And I think there was very much a feeling in the chancellery here that it just needed to do something to change the dynamic, if you like. There'd been so much focus on the fact that it was very much member state led response. Lots of talk of sort of Corona nationalism. And 
that there is something to be said for this sort of big gesture, if you like, of solidarity, a very conscious change, of course, by a German government that's acutely aware of the criticism that it's come in for in its handling of the uh, sovereign debt crisis um, from 2008 onwards, uh, and, and keen to try and show some sort of lessons learned on what Merkel has described as the EU's biggest challenge that it's faced in its history. And, and, and I think the, the proof of, of that sense of urgency is that it took four years for Merkel to accept and agree on the European stability mechanism, which was the kind of ad hoc response to the euro crisis and the Greek crisis. And it took, in this case, four months for her to accept something that is actually much more fundamental and revolutionary. So this is, I think, a different uh, era. But, but I, will, I will add to Sarah, I will nuance a bit. I don't think Germany and Merkel did that out of pure solidarity and charitable effort. I think there's a selfish dimension to it, but a noble selfish one is I don't think Germany can afford to be uh, on its own. Uh, I think Germany is actually scared to be a, a lonely power. And Germany needs the European project to keep on being a strong country. Absolutely. Interesting. So as Sarah mentioned, uh, Germany will t has taken over the EU presidency on the 1st of uh, July. So um, what do the, six, the next six months look like then? Very busy. Uh, the challenges that Germany was uh, planning on addressing, for example, uh, negotiating a seven-year multi-annual financial framework for EU's long-term budget, never easy at the best of times, certainly not now, uh, are all still on its plate. The challenge, for example, of uh, managing the next few months of the UK's transition period out of the European Union, which finishes on the end of the German presidency, the challenge of shaping a, or at least trying to shape some sort of united response to uh, geopolitical pressures from China and now actually, of course, from the US as well. All of those challenges have stayed and a whole heap more of crisis response challenges, of course, have arrived. Uh, so it's going to be busy six months. The agenda has rather been rewritten and just one example of the degree to which the agenda has been rewritten uh, prior to uh, the arrival of corona in Europe. The highlight, if you like, of the German presidency was meant to be this historic meeting between the leaders of the EU27 with President Xi Jinping uh, that was due to take place in Leipzig in September. That has now uh, been postponed with no new date given uh, with corona the official explanation, although I think there's probably more that we can say on that one in due course. Um, uh, because, uh, But it's an example, if you like, of how Corona has come along and just thrown so much of the agenda, the highlight of this set piece that basically is no more. I mean, I'll move on to China in a bit uh, and, and other uh, foreign policy challenges, so to speak. Um, but I'd like to ask you both, what is the view on Brexit at the moment, speaking on topics uh, that Corona has almost disrupted or thrown out the window altogether? Is there currently a mismatch of expectations on either side? I think there is more fatigue and the kind of broad need to get on with it uh, one way or another. Uh, and obviously, uh, there are also some red lines that the EU is is keen on, on sticking to, even though 
I think Barnier has done the usual Barnier where he set the, the bar very high, especially on the level playing field. And now he's willing to concede on some kind of compromise arrangements, which probably he was anticipating, but as a way also to give Boris Johnson a face-saving uh, moment where Johnson can go to the British people and say, look, I got a better deal than what was expected. Let's go for it. But that better deal, I can tell you, will be will require from the UK to make some compromises and to accept some uh, direct or indirect uh, control or, or regulatory, I uh, would say, um, intrusiveness from the EU. I think the interesting thing, isn't it, Fabrice, will be when do we see those compromise cards start to be being played? I mean, the UK was very insistent after this high level summit meeting between Johnson and von der Leyen, uh, where we were meant to be reviewing the progress that has been made to date, when in fact there's not huge amounts of progress to review. The UK was very insistent on pushing for another fairly intensive round of negotiations through July and August, claiming uh, that that a deal could even be done, you know, before autumn. I haven't heard anyone on the EU side of things that thinks that that's uh, remotely likely. Um, and and I think there's a little bit of a mismatch, as you were saying, Maya, in terms of the dynamic and the tempo about who plays what card when to get us to the deal. And the bottom line is that what the UK is now offering, this is no longer the May government, it's no longer the May deal. What the UK is now offering is simply not that exciting for the EU, which finds its plate full of other more important issues that it needs to handle. And because the offer is frankly not that exciting for the uh, EU, whilst nobody wants to crash the car into the wall, there's clear will on all sides to negotiate a deal. The bar is pretty low for what that deal is going to look like. And is it likely that a deal will be made uh, by the end of this year? So I would argue yes, and that the interesting thing will be what is actually in that deal. We're hearing a lot more now about a sort of Mercosur-style deal, if you like, whereby we'll have a pretty low uh, initial deal in one comprehensive framework. And of course, there'll be plenty of negotiations that will have to continue through 2021 and beyond. I mean, financial services negotiations, for example, have barely even begun. No, and these are really long-term processes, of course, at the best of times. Um Moving on then to uh, the EU's foreign policy at the moment. So we've spoken a lot about the internal issues uh, just now and what this means for the EU's ability uh, to respond collectively to to challenges that it faces day to day uh, in its own member states. But um, how how effortlessly or how... Um, how coherently and collectively do you think the EU, uh, as it stands today, is going to be able to respond to challenges in its external environment? We'll go into greater detail in just a second, but just in broad terms, um, collective and, and a common foreign and security policy has never been easy uh, for, for member states to agree upon. Where does it stand at the moment? If I may, uh... I think not in a good place if you compare to the initial level of ambition of the new uh, European Commission, which talked about being a geopolitical commission. And now it's very much a crisis management commission at home, trying to rebuild uh, the broken pieces by COVID and the ensuing uh, economic crisis that is going to hit Europe one way or another. However, uh, I think there are nuances here. One is on the economic or the, what you can call the geoeconomic front. I think Europe is doing better and clearer. 
if you look at how we respond to China as an economic competitor, the fact that the uh, uh, the next big thing after the recovery front is the white paper that the European Commission issued uh, a week ago on foreign subsidies. This is a big deal. It sounds technical, but it's a big deal because it's about barring basically foreign companies operating the single market that have received subsidies from, from states. And this is mostly China. Uh, and I think on that front, on the kind of geoeconomic power, the EU is getting on with it and building up its masses. However, on the more geopolitical security aspects, I think the EU is still punching way below its weight and even, I would say, even more below than before because actually the crises have increased. Uh, Libya, Syria, now we even have a huge political headache with Hong Kong and you can see that the responses, the collective responses of the EU and Europe is actually uh, pretty weak compared to the level of, of those challenges. Yes, I mean, I, I would I would say that uh, what we're starting to see is great co greater comfort on the EU side with sort of sharper edged rhetoric, at least around uh, the role of China and concern about its increasing influence uh, and uh, in international affairs with a range of examples. Hong Kong, Fabrice has mentioned uh, activities in the South China Sea. Frankly, we've even had the EU Commission uh, publish reports uh, on um, dissemination of sort of uh, disinformation around uh, coronavirus as well. Uh, a, a willingness across the board, not just at the EU level, but I noticed just here in Germany last week, the uh, Social Democrat Party has published a position paper on China and it even calls, uh, labels China a systemic rival. So that language, that the language of systemic rivalry is absolutely taking hold. I think as Fabrice rightly says, the problem is the, and so what? So what are we actually going to do about it? And here you get a slight sort of bipolar attitude, because on the one hand, you have China uh, and Germany chasing, or Germany in particular, still chasing this investment agreement. So, hey, guys, you know, let's keep free trade alive and well. Uh, let's sign this agreement that we've been negotiating with little progress since 2013. And this could maybe be the new highlight of the German presidency. But on the other hand, a whole range of issues of Chinese uh, behavior, frankly, in the international community, where the values piece is becoming and the, dis, you know, uh, the, the difference in our values and what we and all the role we expect to play in the international community is just being highlighted further. Absolutely. And uh, I'd like to remark, though, that although the uh, systemic rivalry uh, wording in the EU strategic outlook towards China, um, of course, caught a lot of attention, notably from the Chinese government, um, which wasn't too pleased with that language. Um, there's also three other labels attached to China, which the EU tries to balance its relationship on. Um, and that is one of a partner uh, and as well as a competitor, of course. So, I mean, the question here is and has always been uh, to what extent do EU member states disagree on what a China policy should be? They, they might agree that there is a challenge, but those challenges might be different for each country um, and therefore uh, policy priorities uh, might differ as well. If I can, uh, on that, I think it, it's interesting because there, there, are, there are different uh parts to that question. One is, I think there is a broader agreement that 
indeed China is a challenge and, and we need to, to, to tackle that. And that agreement is actually coming from what used to be the weakest link of uh, an EU-China policy, which is Germany. I think a couple of years ago, there was really a U-turn in the German both business and political uh, elite that uh, China is no longer this cooperative huge market, but is also a real challenge to our economic sovereignty. Uh, and on that, I think even the free traders, the Finns, the Danes, uh, the Swedes are increasingly aligned with that, that view. Uh, so I think we, we have... Uh, on the broader approach, a point of agreement. However, there is also a point of agreement, especially in Germany and Paris, that China remains an important partner on some global issues like climate change, uh, like also the wider Middle East and like debt in Africa. And when you took to senior officials in Paris, they're not willing to go all the way to, let's say, the Washington consensus on decoupling and being tough and containing China because they do need China also because the U.S. is no longer a reliable partner on those issues. So I, I think it's not so much about differences as about this odd balance that I think the Europeans are trying to build in engaging, being tougher and less naive towards China, but also increasingly uh, and continuously engaging. However, just one last point. I did an audit of the 10 commitments that both the EU and the Chinese had taken a year ago when it was called systemic, systemic uh, rival. And what's interesting, the EU has broadly delivered on what it ought to, to do and what it committed to do, like investment screening, foreign subsidies paper, and so on. But what you also see is that China has actually under-delivered both as a cooperative partner on Africa, on climate change, on Iran, and has also not fundamentally changed its economic posture. And that's why uh, Sarah was referring to the bilateral investment agreement. This is not a gift we want to give to the Chinese. It's not working because it requires the Chinese to make real changes to the way the economy operates with foreign companies. And they're not willing to make those changes. So I think the, the bottom line here is the EU's got tougher, but it's not enough to change China's overall economic and political posture. Absolutely. And, and meantime, those differences, Maya, that you were talking about between uh, member states where Chinese influence uh, is notably stronger, economic influence in particular, aren't so willing to go along uh, with this change in tone that Fabrice is talking about in Germany uh, and other countries. And I think this tension between economic interests and security interests is only exacerbated by the impact of COVID. I mean, ultimately, if you add up all of the initiatives made by the member states and the EU collectively uh, in terms of responses, we're looking at over 3 trillion euros as a total fiscal response. Now, that money has to come from somewhere. And actually, if you look at what China is offering uh, in some of the Mediterranean states, and you look at the fact that actually as a 5G competitor, for example, its offering is clearly cheaper uh, and more immediately available than alternatives. This, this debate amongst all EU member states is going to run and if anything is becoming more difficult. 
Absolutely. And and just to note to our listeners on the point of investment screening mechanisms for which the European Union has passed uh, an EU regulation uh, and now requires, uh, has required um, uh, EU member states to uh, create uh, an, a formal investment screening mechanism uh, where those didn't exist. Um, this needs to be done by October this year, I believe. And so far, there are still, by my last count, eight member states who have neither uh, a mechanism nor have made any changes towards that. So still uh, quite a significant uh, a number of countries in Europe that have a way to go uh, in responding to some of these challenges. But perhaps moving on uh, and related, of course, to the relationship between the EU and China is uh, the EU, chi uh, the China-US uh, rivalry uh, and, uh, and how that impacts uh, already strained transatlantic relations between the EU and the US. Yeah, I, and I think this is this is the the other big challenge ahead is, um, you know, whether and how Europe will be able to resume some kind of uh, strategic cooperation with the uh, U.S. counterpart because now things are pretty much, I would say, in a wait and see mode. Uh, I think here the bottom line is. I don't think anyone's got any illusion that we're going to return to some kind of paradise land of the transatlantic relationship, which actually was long gone, including under the Obama administration, which took a very functional transactional view on Europe and was not really engaged until Europe was about to collapse because of the euro crisis and the Russia war in, in Ukraine. So uh, I think hopefully what's, what should be going on now is how are we going to work with a, a Trump administration? Where can we work? And the same on Biden, because knowing Biden's orientation, and if you look at his piece in foreign affairs, he's going to be a nation builder. He's going to focus very much on domestic issues. And he will have a foreign agenda that will be nicer and, and more engaging for the Europeans, but it's not going to be uh, what we can imagine of the U.S. returning to Europe and strategic affairs. However, I think China will be the point where there can be a much greater triangulation with the Americans, provided, and that's important, the Americans don't take this black and white absolute approach to China, because one thing is true, the Europeans don't like to choose. It's the same on Russia. You cannot put the Europeans in front of a black and white choice, meaning Ukraine or Russia. That's never going to fly with how Europe sees itself and is geopolitically positioned. And it's the, the same on China. But I think here there was really some US-Europe cooperation missing, largely because of Trump's, I think, approach that is very unilateral and transactional. But I think also because of the Europeans who woke up quite late uh, from an American point of view to the Chinese challenge, starting with Huawei. Sure, but that's quite a big provided, isn't it, Fabrice, in terms of uh, provided that um, the Americans don't force this into a sort of you're with us or against us yeah. moment. I mean, there's definitely a real fear, I think, here on the continent that um, uh, that a lot of the China rhetoric that we're seeing coming out, as you say, from both sides of the, both ends of the political spectrum in the US now is very much domestically driven. I'm not sure that that's actually fair personally, but in other words, 
words, there are points to be scored by looking tough on China. And that therefore, when you hear, whether it's the Biden campaign or the Trump administration talking tough on China, this is them playing that to their domestic audiences. And we need to just sort of sit tight and, and not. And that makes it harder to have this uh, dialogue, this triangulation, if you like. Um, uh, and so I think there's a feeling here at the moment, certainly across a range of issues, not just on China, of just how do we how do we even start to play into this uh, talking to the nation, to this domestic dialogue? Is there any point? What's our point of leverage? How do we even get into this conversation? Or do we just sit here and wait what is going to be a very long five months until November uh, and to see what happens then? Because whether it's on, you know, I'm sitting here in Berlin in Germany where the US administration is uh, meant to be uh, downsizing troop withdrawals, and yet the Chancellery and the Ministry of Defence took you know, several days to have that even confirmed by the White House, because relations, frankly, are uh, not so smooth at the moment. Um, across a range of issues, the French and digital tax, where we're also having a fight with the US on this, it just feels like uh, you know, there's a looming threat of automobile tariffs that's never gone away. And this fear that basically, uh, in order for domestic political reasons between now and November, transatlantic relations are going to get worse, not better. So what would, from a European perspective, be a good outcome of a Biden presidency? What would Europe hope for from a Biden presidency? I, I think Europe is first uh, hoping for a change of style because uh, style matters. And, and I think uh, the Trump administration, which sometimes on substance was right, uh, got it wrong in how it conveyed its messages to, to the Europeans. So, uh, and, and I think we can expect that from President Biden if he's elected because he's, he's got a natural style and a natural understanding of Europe. And I think then it's about to carve those two or three top issues where indeed there can be a much closer cooperation. And I think on China, uh, you can envisage that. Um, uh, on, I think, Middle East, this is going to be more complicated. Uh, because I think Biden is very much along the line of what we've seen under Obama and even more under Trump of, you know, a reduced engagement in Middle Eastern affairs and conflicts by the U.S. And, and this is a problem for the Europeans, especially the French, who are uh, very much engaged there. Uh, but on another issue that the Europeans care very much, like climate change, I think clearly the Biden administration will be much more, will not only return to the Paris Climate Agreement, we have to see how his Congress will be uh, taking that, but will want to even push, push things forward uh, in terms of fighting climate change and bring back the U.S. as a force for good and possibly even work, try to work with the Chinese on bringing them back also into a constructive role, which is what one of the things that the Obama administration got right with Beijing. So I think on, on those two issues, China and climate, I can see here some, some more potential. And then finally, uh, Biden made very clear he wants to work more with democracy. He's got this vision of, you know, trying to formalize some kind of alliance of like-minded democracies, both from Asia, from Europe, and, and from America. And I think here there is some kind of alignment uh, with the Europeans. The, the British have issued this idea of a D10, which would be a kind of new G7 with more democracies. Uh, you have to flesh it out, but this could be another area where we could also see eye to eye. 
Yeah, I mean, Mai, you asked what what um what would be a good outcome. I mean, frankly, it's for an ally to behave like an ally. Uh, that means basically uh, the US, for example, uh, reconfirming it, its commitments to NATO, uh, which is, remains you know, the cornerstone of European defence. It means outreach and consultation rather than surprises and unpredictability. Um, I think one of the complicating factors in all of this, though, is, is the, you know, to bring things back briefly to Corona, is the emerging competition we're seeing in the market uh, on the race for the vaccine. And, you know, the news this week, we saw the US has bought up almost the entire global supply of remdesivir. Um, and I think this is going to be one of these places where actually for all of our rhetoric on cooperation, multilateral approaches, uh, the reality is that each member state will be doing what it can to uh, assure access uh, as quickly as possible to vaccine, uh, to potential vaccines. And there, I'm not too sure that we should have any grand expectations for President Biden over President Trump, because some of this sort of nation first instinct is is understandable and and fits into what we're seeing in the wider world beyond simply uh, President Trump. Indeed. Now, you mentioned NATO, and I just want to jump on that and quickly ask uh, Fabrice what the current debate is around strategic autonomy uh, in uh, in uh, the EU and um, and how does that fit into current discussions about NATO and what what do you think the US perspective on all of this is right now yeah i think strategic autonomy is a pretty bold uh to an extent anti uh, headline and i would think that NATO is more in trying to keep the pieces together uh both between the Europeans and the Americans but also uh, with Turkey uh, so I think uh, NATO is very much in a kind of political crisis management here. Uh, and I'm not sure Biden administration, again, a nicer, softer style, but I'm not sure there will be, uh, you know, uh, I would say a new or extended commitment of the U.S. administration to NATO, because this is something, a deep running trend, which we have seen, again, before Trump. Uh, and I think there will be Trump after Trump in terms of some consensus that is very much there across the European and uh, the American public. So I, I'm not sure we're out of the wood uh, in terms of crisis, political crisis and NATO wants and if there is a new U.S. administration. Uh, and, and you can see without the U.S., um, it's difficult to keep the pieces together. Uh, the French have tried to rally uh, the other ally vis-a-vis the Turkish misbehavior, bad behavior, in the Mediterranean, and they have not achieved consensus. They've got only eight European countries willing to sign a statement with the French. So I think, and, and the French complain that NATO is not enough political, but the one NATO ally that has always made sure that NATO will not be a political forum is the French themselves. So, so I think there is still a lot of work on that front. On strategic autonomy, I mean, Sarah is in Berlin, so it's interesting because I think it means different things to different governments in Europe. Uh, the French have a very extensive definition of, of it. It smells to some as a protectionist definition. The Germans have a more careful definition. And actually, I think the Biden administration is looking into it and will have a less, I would say, absolutist definition of what decoupling means between the U.S. and China. So I think until we really kind of get more specific, this is just going to be a headline uh, and it's not really going to be this kind of game-changing effort. 
you're right, Fabrice, aren't you? About tensions between the allies on uh, how to manage uh, Turkish misbehaviour and this NATO defence ministers meeting that's just happened, which sounded like it was a, a pretty uh, a car crash in terms of French attacks on Turkish behaviour and uh, and serious discomfort around the table about how to respond. And of course, we've just had the first face-to-face meeting between Merkel and Macron here um, in Berlin uh, since uh, coronavirus uh, hit in Europe. Uh, this was meant to be this sort of symbolic. This was the first person that Merkel was meeting. The Franco-German axis is back. It's working together very closely. And at the press conference, Macron is asked uh, about Turkey and he accuses them of criminal irresponsibility or criminal behavior, criminal misbehavior. And uh, Merkel is asked uh, about Turkey. And funnily enough, uh, she just doesn't answer that particular question. Um, In terms of the uh, strategic autonomy piece, I mean, I think there's always been deep discomfort in particular in the defence ministry here with this sort of idea of European strategic autonomy on a defence sort of, you know, the the lack of strategic enablers. This is just not something that is remotely realistic in a short or even a medium term trajectory. Um, uh, Hence the deep-seated commitments uh, to NATO uh, and keeping the US engaged as much as possible in Europe. I mean, I think what I'm starting to pick up a little bit is the opportunity that this refocusing of health on uh, as part of defence, as part of uh, uh, a security uh, concern gives to strategic autonomy. So, for example, talking about strategic autonomy and purchasing strategic enablers here in Berlin is very difficult to get the money and the political support for. But as soon as you start to talk about healthcare as something where actually the EU need to be a little bit more uh, strategically autonomous, whether that is very, you know, it's the production of PPE equipment, whether right now, as we're looking on the sort of vaccine race, whether that's the production of glass vials, which is the sort of PPE race that's going to come. Uh, And that discussion is something where I think we will see uh, a little bit more uh, coherence and agreement on because it's just a more comfortable space to discuss. Now, I don't only want to focus on challenges, but I can't end this uh, this podcast without uh, point, uh, turning to Russia and uh, the um, what seems to be a perhaps softer approach favored by uh, the LEC at the moment uh, towards Moscow. How is the EU positioning itself here uh, with regards to uh, its relationship with Russia? I'm of two minds on Macron's approach to Russia. On one hand, I sometimes do believe that he's really sincere intellectually that Russia belongs to the kind of broader European project. Uh, We need to drive a wedge between Russia and China. I mean, all the the kind of uh, intellectual uh, assumptions that he laid out back uh, last uh, summer. Um, So that's for the sincere part. Uh, I think the most cynical part is I hope that Macron is not that naive, that uh, Russia might somehow be interested in rejoining the broader European family, that why will Russia drive a wedge between Beijing and Moscow when this has been pretty convenient technologically and politically for them. Uh, But the cynical part is, you know, it positioned Macron as the man in between, as the key interlocutor, because there is no other key interlocutor to Vladimir Putin, including Merkel, who I think has exhausted very much that effort, even though she's still an important interlocutor, and there is no interlocutor in the United States. So it puts uh, Macron in this kind of de Gaulle, man of the hour position, 
Uh, and in the end, I don't. I hope the cynical part is this is not about Europe and security because without the US in the conversation, you cannot have a kind of agreement with Russia on European strategic matters. But it's very much about trying to find some kind of competition cooperation agreement on the things that really hurt France's national security, mostly Syria and Libya. And, and since the U.S. is no longer a winning player, Macron has to turn to who else is the other player and who else is Russia. Uh, so I think he's trying to find a modus operandi that somehow at least uh, does not create a dangerous situation. And second, somehow could come to a political resolution of those two conflicts where France has real direct interest. So I'm on the cynical side of this in that I think that uh, Macron might like to think of himself in the sort of de Gaulle man of the hour moment. But um, that's not how it's perceived, uh, whether you're in Germany, uh, in the UK or in much of Eastern and Central Europe. I think there's a deep discomfort that, uh, you know, the sort of paradox that basically what, what he's doing is doing confidence building talks with Russia but at the expense of undermining confidence uh, in many of his EU and NATO allies. And it's something sort of a little bit uncomfortable for me about watching this outreach, which, you know, I would be delighted to be wrong and for there to be substantive results from all of the dialogues uh, and the workshops and the working groups that he's uh, suggesting. Um, but but there's this sort of juxtaposition between this outreach and, uh, and discussion. And here we have Chancellor Merkel outright accusing Russia of hybrid war, finally going on record to attribute the attacks on the Bundestag to the Russian state, and recently the German prosecutor directly accusing uh, Russian state of involvement in murder here in the Tiergarten in Berlin. I mean, this is just not much uh, confidence-building reciprocity going on um, on the other side of the table. So we've covered a lot of topics today, and um, not many of them have been very positive. And what I don't want to do is uh, end this podcast on a negative note. So I'd like to challenge each of you to, after our talk of um, of uh, disagreements within European Union, uh, within member states, uh, with troubles across the Atlantic and with China and Russia, to think of perhaps um, a positive note to end on, what do you think is something that is uh, going well in the European Union? What do you think is something that we can look forward to in the next few months? I think it's Europe's hour. And now things are very much more in the hands of our leaders, our governments, our institutions. Meaning we are no longer just you know sitting and hoping we're not going to be hit by a virus. But we are much more about, are they going to make the right decisions at the right moment that actually potentially, if we get it right in terms of this major, major stimulus package, it could be a huge boost for Europe's transformation. But that will require a lot of wisdom and a lot of you know, smart thinking from our leaders. But potentially, it could really position Europe as the good place and much more modern uh, advanced economy than it was before the crisis. So I'm, I'm actually mostly positive about what might happen in the coming years, whilst obviously I'm holding my breath on the social backlash that this economic crisis is going to create and the many Trumps and Orbans that it might bring to Europe and politics. But if they get it right... 
if they allocate the money where Europe needs it most, if we don't play just politics, but strategic decisions at every level, we could actually, Europe could be in a good place. Yeah, I agree, Fabrice. I think actually it's not so hard to find a sort of positive in all of this, which is that for all the talk of the sort of EU, you know, disunity, the challenges on coordination, the bottom line, I think, is that that in faced with a pandemic, the European sort of social market model has actually held up reasonably well. Uh, China, you know, we talk about this sort of US-China world and the US model and the China model. Well, the China model, frankly, is showing itself, uh, you know, true colours. Uh, it looks increasingly unattractive and the uh, national security law um, for Hong Kong uh, looks as the mo- only the most recent example of that. And likewise, in the US, you know, if you look at the unemployment figures uh, and you look at the queues uh, for food, and, and I don't want to play down the very real difficulties that people are facing here in Europe, but with Kurzarbeit, with a sort of welfare, social market welfare model that we have here in Europe, um, I think Europe actually looks a pretty attractive place to live right now, uh, more so, even more so, frankly. Uh, in the wake of or the first few months, at least, of this pandemic. Um, and if actually we're all sitting here having this podcast, working from our respective homes, if ultimately what we're proving with this pandemic is that actually we can all work more from home, then work is even more likely to travel to the places where people actually want to live. And hopefully that's actually pretty good news for Europe. Excellent points to end on. So I want to thank you both for joining me today and sharing your insights. We could have talked for hours, I'm sure. Um, But for the moment, thank you. And I hope to have you both on uh, in the future again. Thanks a lot, Mayas. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. And thank you to our audience for listening as well. Please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions just like this. And to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and defense, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. See you all next time.